0: Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. In the last episode, we heard Pentagon legend Pierre Spray discuss the unusual circumstances surrounding the birth of the A-10. He told the story of how fear of an Army helicopter program convinced the Air Force Chief of Staff to authorize the creation of a dedicated ground attack aircraft despite his lack of real interest in the mission. He also described the unique group of individuals who came together to accomplish something that had never been done before, design an aircraft that had no other purpose than to support the troops on the ground. They faced a great deal of resistance from the Air Force bureaucracy along the way, but eventually their efforts resulted in the A-10 Thunderbolt. In this episode, Pierre describes how the second phase of the fight for the A-10 and the close air support mission began after the aircraft had gone into production.
1: We'd gone through all the bloodshed and all the battles to get a decent airplane put together, to get the prototypes sold, to get a competitive program going, and to get a a really realistic test. Every one of those things, of course, was like pulling teeth. And and we had a source selection that actually picked the better airplane on a very realistic grounds. Quickly became obvious was that this airplane was not going into production. It was headed for the museum because although the Air Force was happy to get some money to build a prototype and do some R&D, they were not about to cough up real production money for this airplane for a mission they didn't want to do. At just about this time, actually, the source selection or so, another one of those great strokes of luck happened in the A-10 program, and that was a new Secretary of Defense came on board. This was, I believe, uh, 1973. James Schlesinger became Secretary of Defense and he was one of those few secretaries of defense who comes in who seriously wants to leave a legacy of a better defense department than what he found. And it turned out he had a trusted confidant from his earlier career at Bureau of the Budget and then at RAND, who was a retired airborne colonel named Richard Halleck. He had real faith in this guy. This guy was a, both a brilliant tactician very highly decorated in World War II in Korea, and an equally adept bureaucratic tactician, a guy who profoundly understood what makes bureaucracies tick. And the happy accident was that he had been one of my first mentors when I came to the Pentagon. He was basically everything I knew about ground warfare, I learned from him. So we'd been friends, I'd helped him with some some work he was working on. He was particularly a specialist in rifles, among other things. Uh, And I'd stayed in touch with him over the years, helped him with projects at RAND. When Schlesinger got the word that he was gonna be Secretary of Defense, even before he was installed in office, he got a hold of Dick Halleck and said, I need you to lay out for me a whole program of what I should do as Secretary of Defense to make the Defense Department A better place. Uh, Halleck was probably one of the only guys in the world who could give him a good answer to that question. Feziger meant everything in the Department of Defense, everything from JCS organization, OSD organization, budget, and of course what to do with the Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marines. He installed Halleck in a little secret office on the E-ring. Alec worked 18-hour days there on this huge task. He only had like a couple of months to do it because Schlesinger was going to be installed. As he had done before, he asked me to help him out on the airport. What was it that Schlesinger should focus on? He had right right at the beginning, he had given Schlesinger the very sound advice that If you don't know exactly what you wanna do when you get into the Pentagon and get it at least underway within the first six months, you'll never never accomplish anything. If you haven't started and hit the ground running, by the time six months has gone, the bureaucracy will have swamped you and anything you wanted to do will evaporate. As you can imagine, when I pitched in, my recommendations on the key things to leave behind the Air Force were to give them a good close-support airplane and a good air-to-air airplane to cover the skies over the battlefield where the, air, the close-support airplanes were doing their good work. Basically, air, air-to-air patrolling, not deep in the enemy's territory, but right over the battle area. So, of course, <laughs> at that point, needless to say, we had two airplanes to do that. We had the A-10, which we'd been working on since '68. And and it was ready to go. I mean, it was already in hardware. And the F-16 was only a year behind. It was in the middle of its flyoff, And so Halleck very happily accepted that, you know, his recommendation to Schlesinger would be get A-10s and get F-16s for the Air Force. Easier said than done, because he knew and I knew very well that both airplanes were anathema to the Air Force. The last thing in the world the Air Force wanted was any close-support airplane. And the F-16 was almost equally unpopular because it was smaller, hotter, and cheaper than the apple of their eye, the F-15. It was half the size and half the cost, and they were still busy defending the F-15. So the last thing in the world they wanted was something that would you know, outdo and disgrace their airplane. So Halleck and Schleser came up with really the only answer for getting this done because there was no way you could just order the Air Force to buy you know a thousand A-10s or two thousand F-16s It just wasn't possible because they would go immediately to the Congress badmouth it and that would be the end of the whole thing the Congress would never appropriate the money basically what they came up with was we have to make the Air Force an offer they can't refuse. And that was very simple, and Schlesinger immediately went for it. The offer that the Air Force couldn't refuse was simple. If you take these two airplanes, the A-10 and the F-16, which we very well understand you hate, we will expand the Air Force for you by six wings, and plus a whole bunch of other airplanes to fill out a large number of half-empty wings they had. All in all, the promise was the Air Force would get well over a thousand extra fighters and 800 A-10s. And so Schlesinger proposed exactly that to the then Chief of Staff, whose name was Brown, and said, yeah, we understand, you know, you don't, you don't like these airplanes. But on the other hand, we're offering you a major increase in force structure. And of course, Brown understood. That he would go down in history as the chief, the first chief who, in many years, had expanded the the Air Force force structure and by a major amount by by six wings, you know, plus a whole bunch of filled out empty wings, and it was too tempting for him. Bad as, <laughs> as bad as he thought these airplanes were, he went for it. He jumped for the bait, and that deal actually went through. And basically, uh, Schlesinger delivered on his promise. The Air Force. Didn't quite hold up their end. How so? Well, in several ways. One of the things they would promised to do was to never put nuclear wiring on the F-16. Schlesinger was hard over about that because he had a big nuclear background. He, he started as a nuclear analyst. And the moment Schlesinger left office, a week later, they approved nuclear wiring for the F-16. So, so much for the good word of the chief of staff of the Air Force. What's And, and what's for the, the? A-10... As soon as we got going with the procurement, they started to whittle it down. And they actually managed, we'd originally planned for, I believe, 835, and they whittled it down to 715. I mean, if they could have, they would have whittled it way lower, but that was as good as they could do at the time. And that was a taste of things to come, because from that day forward to this day, the Air Force has been busy whittling down the A-10 fleet, as they are Right now, as we speak, right. and they're very busy at it. It they, they, looks like they may succeed in knocking off three more squadrons unless the Congress does anything. The, the deal went through, and curiously and interestingly, the F-16, the Air Force, immediately started to redesign and to degrade so that it wouldn't compete with the F-15 as an air-to-air fighter, and they converted it into a multi-mission, basically a multi-mission bomber Added two tons to it, the performance went south. I mean, it was still, you know, a superb fighter, but nothing like what had flown in the prototypes. The A-10, they disliked so much more they didn't even touch it. Mm. <laughs> so we were very lucky. The A-10 basically got built the way we had it in the flyoff, you know, with you know with certain faults that had been discovered in the flyoff corrected, but they didn't add any junk to it. They didn't load it down. They just built it because they were hoping they could get rid of it. <laughs> and so the A-10 that got built was very much the A-10 that had flown off in the fly-off and, in fact, you know, was unquestionably by a large margin, then and today, the finest close support airplane world, well, the most effective, the most survivable, the most lethal, all those things you want in a close support airplane. Of course that That was just the beginning of a long saga of Air Force sabotage. And I don't mean to say that, you know, once the deal was done and once they had whittled it down to 715, that we just kept on producing it. That wasn't the case at all. Almost every other year, there was some excuse to try to cut or kill the production. As I recall, one of the very first attempts To do this was a bunch of Texas interests and others decided to back the A7, the Navy deep strike subsonic bombing fighter, uh, and to claim that it could do close support. All you had to do was strap a gun on it and, you know, paint it, olive drab camouflage, and it was good to go as close support. And they got enough support in the Congress that we got forced to do a fly-off. The fly-off, you know, was ludicrously lopsided. The A7 was, it wasn't a very good deep-strike bomber. It was extremely vulnerable, and it was hopeless as a close-support airplane. Couldn't maneuver because it had to use an external cannon. You know, the cannon would have been very inaccurate. Couldn't find targets. Visibility from the cockpit was terrible. Loiter was, was nowhere near the A-10s, on and on. I mean, it was truly a lopsided flyoff. It was just a waste of time for us, but we had to go through the motions. Otherwise, the Congress would have been inclined, or at least part of the Congress, to try to kill the A-10. Then there was another flap a few years after that, with somebody had come up with the idea of putting a gas turbine engine in a World War II P-51. It was called the Enforcer. And, you know, that had a lot of nostalgia appeal, and they claimed it was super cheap. Again, it was a highly vulnerable airplane and didn't have the loiter time. It had almost no payload compared to the A-10 and so on. that was another waste of time. There was another threat concocted to the A-10. But in fact, production got underway pretty smoothly and the first squadron became operational, I think, at the end of 76, which was pretty good. The fly-off had been in 73 and we actually had operational test and IOC by the end of 76. The one thing that was far from smooth and a really dramatic story, a very critical story in the history of the A-10, was the gun. As you know from what we talked about before, there was a lot of bloodshed over picking the gun, the caliber, putting the depleted uranium in as as the armor penetrator and so on. And now we were in the production phase for the gun, for the gun and ammo program. And again, through a tremendous stroke of luck, we got an unbelievably able guy as head of the gun program. And it was purely a stroke of luck because there was no way to know that this guy would be so good. His name was Colonel Bob Dilger. He was a first-rate air-to-air and air-to-ground tactician from the Nellis Fighter Weapons School, just in the next generation after John Boyd, and he was one of the best out there. His only experience was with air-to-air gunnery. He had no production engineering experience. I have no idea how he got the job, but boy, were we lucky he got the job because he turned out to be a brilliant, natural production engineer. And (laughs) I would say, not a great bureaucratic tactician, but... One, a guy with enough guts that he could just crush the bureaucratic opposition. <laughs> and he was presented, this was right at the beginning of the program, as soon as the Air Force accepted it, he was put in place. He'd been in the Pentagon, in Pentagon R&D, I'd known him there a bit, uh, working on some very interesting stuff on air-to-air missiles. And suddenly there he was, he was the head of the gun and ammo program. Now you have to understand, The hard part of the gun and ammo program was the ammo, as it turned out. The gun was a Gatling. We'd never built a Gatling that big before, but basically it was an expanded version of the six barrel 20 millimeter Gatling that we already had. And the only big problems we had with that were because one of the specification battles that I lost uh, this incredibly incompetent gun bureaucracy at Eglin Air Force Base dictated a retain the brass spec. This was this crazy spec, had never been applied to an airborne gun before. And that was, when you shoot the cannon, you know, you're cycling cycling bullets, in this case at 4,000 rounds per minute, through the gun, and on every other airborne gun before you throw the, the cases, the expended uh, shell casings overboard. And this unbelievably incompetent bureaucracy came up with the idea that 30 millimeter shell casings, which by the way we had made aluminum, which was a kind of a fairly radical step forward at the time, that aluminum shell casings were a menace to the troops, right? <laughs> crazy idea. I mean first of all they weren't heavy enough to really be a menace to the troops and you know they scattered over such a wide area the probability of them even you know bouncing off somebody's helmet was so low it was ridiculous right. That caused us fits in the gun because retain the brass means you've got to cycle all those shells that are shooting out of the out of the breach of the gun uh, Now you're going to cycle them through a chute back into the big ammunition drum. And needless to say, that caused us some reliability problems that he did. They were not the hardest problem we had to solve. It finally worked, but sadly, it meant a bunch of extra weight on the airplane. And every once in a while, it still causes a hang up, although very rarely, the gun's very reliable. The big problem was the ammunition. Now remember, as, as, as part of this program, we had, right from the start, specified this airplane has to have a really good war reserve, right? You can't, you can't be building a close support airplane that runs out of ammunition in two weeks and believe that you're doing something to stop a hundred divisions of Soviet tanks in Europe. And so we, we had specified that we wanted six months of War Reserve ammunition. That's a lot of bullets, especially when the cannon is totally your main armament, and we were expecting to basically shoot out the full load, which was 1,100 rounds on most every mission. You know, 20 passes, 1,100 rounds, given, you know, an overwhelming force to face. Well, it turns out, when Dilger took over the program, they presented him with a cost estimate for the round of $110 per round. You know, now think about that. We're talking about somewhere on the order of a million rounds or something, maybe some more actually. That might have been enough to stop the program right there because nobody was going to cough up that kind of money back then for a mission they didn't want to do. Right? Dilger went to work on that. and again it was brutal and bloody because over a third of the cost was just in packaging which came from all these mill specs about how you have to handle ammunition and how you have to store it and what temperature it's got to be able to withstand on and on that added so much cost to the round so by dint of crushing you know 10 or 15 different bureaucracies responsible for different aspects of making shells ammunition more expensive by dint of crushing that opposition, he got the cost down to thirteen rounds and thirteen dollars a round. Thirteen dollars a round—amazing achievement—and in part, in part, by just ripping up a bunch of specs that were simply impediments to good procurement, to good practice, even impediments to safety, and in part by starting a brilliant competitive, annual competitive procurement. That is, he he winnowed the field of manufacturers down to two manufacturers in the first round of competition and then set it up so that every year they would compete for the next year's lot of ammunition, which was a lot, right? And he arranged it that the winner would get 80% of the production, the loser would get 20%. And so year after year, they were at each other's throats, cutting the price, and the lead actually changed almost every year. It wasn't that one co- contractor dominated; they were really fighting it out. And between between killing the useless specs and this brilliant competition that he really policed, he got the round down to thirteen dollars per round, astonished, which made the ammunition affordable, and gave us a huge, a huge WRM. That wasn't the only drama (laughs) in in the gun program the gun program in a way is is every bit as great an achievement as the airplane part you know uh and bilger gets full credit for it Uh, the other part was again our brilliant gun bureaucracy at eglin they were all out of the army ordnance system so they were doing things army style pretty much and army style You do lot acceptance programs, every lot of ammunition. You take some sample, whatever it is, 1,000, 2,000 rounds, and you shoot it. And if everything goes off without a hitch, then you accept that lot. Of course, the Army is used to doing that on Army ground firing ranges. So these guys said, all right, you know, we've got a firing range here at Eglin. You know, we'll fire out our, our lot by lot sample. Uh, you know, mount a gun on concrete pillar, have a target at a thousand feet, make sure all the rounds shoot reliably, run through the gun properly, and all that. And that's how Delger looked at that. And having had a lot of experience, at least with air-to-air guns, never with anything like this. He said, "No, no, no." <laughs> Shooting on the ground is not shooting the same as shooting in the air. There's a lot that happens in the air. First of all, you're facing a wind blast whatever it is, 200 to 400 miles an hour. Uh, You've got an airplane shaking and shuddering, especially with a high recoil of a 30 millimeter. Uh, The circumstances of firing in the air cannot be reproduced on the ground and I insist that all our lot acceptance testing be done from airplanes in the air, perfectly sound as it turned out. Just that alone saved the A-10 program. Uh, Because it turned out when they did their first lot acceptance, uh, it turned out that the round was unusable. You know, much to everybody's surprise for two two main reasons and a few other reasons too. One was the gun gases produced so much smoke that the pilot was blinded during the entire burst you know which is not a good time. I mean it's not wasn't necessarily dangerous that he would fly into the ground but just at the moment when you want to know exactly where the Pipper is suddenly you're seeing nothing but smoke. The second thing was it was causing the engines to quit. It was causing engine stalls which was that was even more serious, right? You don't you don't want that in peacetime, you sure don't want it in combat. And they went into a crash program and did some really, really brilliant engineering. They redid the propellant, they put a new muzzle deflector on the gun, and but didn't I mean this took a while and a lot of shooting. They got around that was perfectly usable. It didn't screw up the engine. He didn't get gun gases ingested into the engine. The engine didn't stall and quit and so on. Uh, Dilger did one more thing. When, when it became obvious that this this airborne lot acceptance program, by the way, he called it the LAVP, the lot acceptance verification program. Uh, he really They'd be shooting up a lot of ammunition you're talking about. Every lot, many thousands of rounds. I mean, not just a thousand, but probably—I I don't remember the exact numbers—but more in the order of ten, twenty thousand, or more. He said, "Why, why just shoot at painted bullseyes in the desert, right? Mm, right? You know, let's let's get some data out of the shooting. We've got real airplanes on hand. We have to have them to shoot the ammunition. We got the ammunition. Let's get some real targets." And being the kind of guy he was. He, by almost entirely illegal means, acquired the fifth largest tank army in the world with something like over 350 tanks, two-thirds of which were American, you know, m 48 stuff like that, that, you know, that had been surplused. And about a third of them actually Soviet tanks, because it turned out that the intelligence people who all during this period, remember, this is the height of the Cold War, Uh, had been busy buying up any Soviet tank they could from any country where you could bribe somebody into selling them a tank, you know, so they were getting tanks for God knows where, Egypt, Yugoslavia, wherever, right? All this was highly classified at the time too, right? And somehow Dilger had run across some intelligence people and let them know he was looking for tanks. And they, they said, well, you know, actually, we have a whole bunch of tanks that are excess to our needs. Apparently this This bribery and corruption program was too successful (laughs) and they had tanks they didn't need. It was embarrassing to them. He said, don't worry about a thing. He said, I can disappear those tanks for you. (laughs) 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 And they actually started hauling in Soviet tanks. This was the LAVP site was in the desert outside Nellis. They had a whole special site where they set up the world's fifth largest tank army out (laughs) in the desert, right? And... In the dead of night, flat cars would come in with big black cloths over these Soviet tanks and unload them so nobody would see them. (laughs) And then another coup, I mean, this shows you what a thoughtful guy this guy was and and how, how totally oriented to real live fire operational testing he was. And this was before we had any of this, you know, mandated the way it is today. Right. He said, it's no good firing at just hulks of tanks you know or burned out tanks or something they got to be real tanks they got to have fuel in them they have to have ammunition in them uh, and they have to have an engine that's more or less running right Uh, and somewhere he got the money inside his uh, gun program which had a big budget because of this huge ammunition buy somewhere he scraped up enough money to hire a marine battalion (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> from, I don't know, from 29 Palms. Probably Palms, or, palms yeah. yeah. from 29 Palms. And they did all his maintenance. Every time they shot up some tanks, they would come up and refurb the tanks and get, get the fuel tank to hold fuel again and shove in some more ammo <laughs> and turn it back into a real target. That's good training for the Marines, frankly. It was good training for everybody. It was good training for the pilots. And the data he gathered, now his interest was to find out how effective is the gun. Because he knew very, we all knew very well there were going to be massive assaults on this program, and we badly needed, we had always claimed that the gun would be more lethal than the missiles of that time, but nobody had hard data, right? We, we did calculations and, you know, and did vulnerability analyses, but nobody had actually shot up live tanks with fuel and stuff with them to prove it. The LAVP program did that in spades, and the results were brilliant. First of all, it turned out we could shoot from much further away than we'd expected and be lethal. We showed superb lethality out to 4,000 feet and beyond. And basically, the results were that we could get an utter destruction kill you know, on 6 out of 10 passes. So there was a probability of kill of 0.6 right. for what's called a K kill, for a complete, you know, this tank will never see combat again. And for... A mobility kill, which in a way is tactically more important, just putting the tank out of business temporarily. Right. We were up in the high eighties and into the nineties, you know, because it turned out the depleted uranium was so pyrophoric, was so good at lighting fires inside the tank. First of all, it it performed brilliantly for penetration. And to this day it can penetrate the top of any tank in the world, the top or the back. Uh of any tank in the world but the the big thing is what does it do when it drills what's after all for a tank a a 30 millimeter a very small hole right right Uh, what happens on the inside and Dilger had all this covered with cameras inside the tanks and by the way the footage is online you can get it on YouTube it's some really interesting footage. the mayhem that breaks loose inside a tank when a depleted uranium round penetrates the back of the turret or something is amazing because it breaks up into these small flaming fragments that are at least as hard to put out as as flaming magnesium right and they're all over the tank i mean it's a shower when you see the footage it's it's blinding it's just nothing but flaming fragments and we actually demonstrated that you didn't even have to have fuel and ammo in the tank these rounds were so pyrophoric that if if you got a hit on a tank, it would almost invariably light off the grease in the sump under the diesel engine. You know, there's never been a diesel engine that didn't that didn't leak a bit. Right, right. And so there's always grease or oil in the sump. And this stuff was so 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 good as an incendiary that just that alone would light off and start burning. You know, obviously to destroy the whole tank, you would need to light off some ammunition afterwards. But anyhow. Uh, and that saved our bacon when, when again when there were more assaults on the airplane from the air force you know that well you know we now have missiles we don't need all this that data was invaluable because there was there was still no missile at the, at the time and probably under real combat circumstances today they can achieve that lethality against tanks you know between the accuracy the ability to hit moving tanks the ability to work in in the smoke and corruption of the battlefield, all of these things are impediments to even today's even today's missiles, and you know the 30 millimeter. Uh, as long as you can get the dim outline of the tank, you can kill it. It's it's very important to understand that after Schlesinger made the deal with General Brown, and General Brown said he would take on these airplanes that the Air Force hated. It wasn't just smooth sailing after that. There was a tremendous amount of bureaucratic tug-of-war, attempts by various two- and three-stars to sabotage the whole thing, uh, and attempts by civilians. Lots of the high-tech R&D bureaucracy in the Pentagon, in what used to be called ddr were adamantly opposed to the A-10 and wanted to see it done in. That was half a dozen years of bureaucratic infighting that was carried forward by, by just a few people in the Pentagon. Uh, fortunately, Schlesinger trusted them and relied on them, but uh, we had some real heroes uh, moving the bureaucracy, You know, putting down the attempts to kill it, making sure the airplane stayed in the budget and very key in that were Tom Christie. And he was staunch and superbly effective at making sure that the A-10 was protected uh, and that Schlesinger's deal was, in fact, implemented. And his, his biggest ally in, in the R&D community, he was, he was, of course, on the acquisition side in the R&D world was a retired test pilot who was a huge, huge supporter of close support and really understood it well, a guy named Chuck Myers, who had a very nice kind of folksy way of explaining to people what close support was, how specialized it was, how hard it was. He actually used to take people that he was trying to convince down to his farm. He had a very nice farm down in Virginia, and he was flying. He was. A, one of those people who just never wants to stop flying right and he had his own plane down there I think it was an aerobatic airplane and he used to take people down and you know run them across his cows in this plane to show him just how hard it is to see objects on the ground from the air and you know how totally out of the picture you are if you're doing four or five hundred knots, that you've got to be in there close and slow and turning hard if you ever want to see anything that's of consequence to the troops. You know, It was very dramatic and effective and and he was able, he was able to to carry the R&D bureaucracy, you know, uh, by just A, by being very persuasive, he was uh, and be by hanging in there, and uh, he was he he convinced a number of his bosses, the higher ranking people in R and D, that the A ten had to be protected, and the fighter mafia kind of expanded with these people, and they were they were essential for those for actually implementing uh, uh, Schlesinger's deal, for making sure that, the air force got what had been promised. The force structure was built out. And this was both on the A-10 side and the F-16. Uh, essentially, at that point, anybody who was an A-10 enthusiast was also an F-16 enthusiast, and they were in fact related because the F-16 was what was going to clear the sky to make A-10 close support possible in the presence of swarms of enemy fighters. When, once the first squadron had been established, you know squadrons formed up fairly smoothly through the 80s. They built up the force. The first combat deployment of the airplane, very few people realize this, was in Panama 89 was not everybody thinks the Desert Storm that was of course the first serious deployment, but the airplane actually went to to Panama because they were anticipating that the Panamanian army might really resist. They might be loyal to Noriega. It turned out they weren't, but uh, so it wasn't much of a war. But the A-10 was laid on specifically to patrol the roads leading into the capital. In case army units started marching in, they would be the ideal way of cutting them off from the capital. And so they patrolled those roads. I know a pilot who flew the missions, and he said not much happened, but we patrolled roads. You know every hour of daylight, while the actual, you know, capture of the capital was going on. Uh, So that was the first combat deployment, not that there was much combat. Then, of course, right on the heels of that came Desert Storm a few years later. And the Desert Storm story is a classic of...
0: Well, before we get into that, I'm I'm kind of interested, because I know this is definitely something that you and I have talked about pretty extensively that about how the the most important part uh, about the A-10, it's not necessarily the, the, the aircraft, but it's the community of close air support professionals that have grown up around it. So one of the one of the reasons that the and again, I know this from from research that I've done and from conversations I've had with you and and, and some other uh, A10 pilots and, and other people involved in it before 1991 the, well the reason that the A10 was so successful in Desert Storm was because we had this cadre of close air support professionals right at the beginning of that conflict. So can you talk about how how that that collective knowledge that was put to such great effect in 1991? kind of accumulated in the years from like around 1976 when the first operational squadron came to 1991.
1: Yeah, that's you're absolutely right. The real backstory to Desert Storm is the fact that for the first time ever, the US had an in-being force of people who knew how to do close support, were ready to do it, and had the right weapons. That had never happened before. Every other war we fought before then, we had to reinvent close support because the previous war's knowledge of close support was promptly wiped out with the peace, uh, deliberately by the Air Force. And basically what happened was, because they were getting airplanes, airplanes were being cranked out, squadrons were being formed, and you know, being the Air Force, they had to do something with the airplanes and the squadrons, so they started training, and and basically the squadrons reinvented close support on their own and built a community of people, I mean, obviously they had lots of input from A1 pilots from Vietnam. In fact, that was one of the features of these squadrons. I went to visit a few of them to talk about tactics and what we had discovered from interviewing, you know, uh, German Germans with close support experience, like Colonel Rudel. Uh, all these squadrons were unbelievably interested in who had preceded them and what they knew. Uh, and basically from what they gathered from a1 veterans and from you know things like the writings of colonel rudel and so on is they put together their own tactics manuals their own you know formations approach tactics you know firing doctrine all that out of whole cloth i mean there was you know there was nothing in the air force written to tell them what to do and what what little actual flying knowledge was still in the Air Force was almost entirely in the Special Air Warfare people who had survived the Vietnam War out of Hurlburt Field in, in England. That's, those people had a fair amount of still, you know, live knowledge. Uh, not, again, not that they had formed it into doctrine or anything, but they were accessible. And all these Spartans had reached out to them and, and built this community. And one thing I, I've discovered recently and I'd, I'd love to have a better history of it, it's a very important part of this, is at the same time, for the first time, they started building up a cadre of forward observers, you know, uh, somewhere in the mid 80s, I don't have the chronology quite right, they actually formed a joint doctrine for that, and, and kind of redefined forward observer into JTAC, Joint Tactical Attack Coordinator right which exists to this day that's a very important part of the close support community of course and something we never had before before in every war we had to reinvent and and train from nothing from the cradle new forward observers and for the first time ever we actually had peacetime training of forward observers in substantial quantities in the Air Force, the Air Force did most of it, but because it was joint doctrine and accepted by the Joint Chiefs, there were also Army J-TACS and Marine J-TACS, and so on. And these built up through the '80s, apparently in bigger numbers than I thought. And in a way, it's on me because I missed I missed it when it was happening, and now I'm trying to I'm trying to catch up on the history of it because it's so important. It was it was certainly certainly important in Desert Storm and in every war since then, you know, uh, obviously, they're an essential component. Uh, and to this day, the Air Force has substantial numbers of JTACs. They haven't, they haven't slashed them to nothing, as you would kind of expect, because, you know, normally in the Air Force, that's, that's a really low-priority training mission. They've actually they've done something great right now. They've actually integrated the JTAC school at Nellis so that they have JTAC weapons instructors, just like you have pilot weapons instructors. And for the first time ever, for the last few years, the actual graduation ceremony is done together. Hmm. That is, JTACs, enlisted guys graduate and go through the ritual of getting the Fighter Weapons School patch, which is a big deal. and are now looked up to in their community as the guys who have the real tactical knowledge so they go back to their units after they've been through the fighter weapons school at Nellis. Uh, a fighter weapons JTAC goes back to his unit, he's the guy that the commander of the unit relies on for advice about forward observers, he's the guy that the trainers go to, here's the latest tactics, all that, it's a very good system. and it's, Absolutely brilliant that they're doing exactly the same thing with JTACs as with pilots. That's, that's a new leaf and tremendously commendable. So yeah, that's and all that was already happening. That is, the existence of trained forward observers was in place before Desert Storm. Now the interesting thing is, if it had been left up to the Air Force, None of that would have been present at Desert Storm. That's, this, is, <laughs> this is such an amazing story. Uh, as you as you recall, there was a long, slow buildup for a Desert Storm. More, well, well over six months, we built up forces, massive forces, in Saudi Arabia. And it was like a slow motion kind of thing, right? And somewhere in the middle of that, General Schwarzkopf, who is the head of the whole Allied force, calls in Air Force General Horner, Chuck Horner, uh, and asks to see what he's proposing to bring in for airplanes. So Chuck Horner comes in with a list of 1900 airplanes, you know, attack airplanes, armed airplanes, mostly American but with, you know, plenty of Allied participation, and he presents the list. Uh, General Schwarzkopf. And General Schwarzkopf looks down the list and he says, where are my A-10s? The Air Force had proposed zero A-10s for Desert Storm. Chuck Horner says, oh, oh we have an airplane, we have this, this A-16, which I'll tell you about in a moment, uh, that You know, it'll do everything that the A-10 can do, right? And we we have some of those in the list here. You'll see them here. It was actually only one squadron, right? (laughs) So much for close support. Schwarzkopf, who was not a great diplomat, (laughs) looks at Horner and he says, Horner? I don't want to hear any of your Air Force political bullshit. Get me my (laughs) A-10s. I mean, it took more than that. He had to go to the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary to get them because the Air Force was really resistant. They really didn't want to send it. They did not want to have any glamour associated with the A-10. But he got them. He got them. The Air Force coughed up the bare minimum that they could get away with. They coughed up 144 A-10s out of a force of 1900 and they're facing one of the largest and they thought best prepared tank armies in the world at the time and all they can cough up is 144 A-10s when they had actually bought 715 of them. That's very sad. As it turned out, those A-10s after the war was over and people had gone through all the target claims and damage and bda and all that and by the way all this data is really soft as i'm sure you know which is true for every war um but based on pilot claims bda when they finished the count of all the tactical targets that had been attacked and destroyed during the war not just tanks but tanks artillery emplacements communication sites tactical headquarters, you know, uh, scud launchers, among other things, truck parks, ammunition dumps, all those tactical targets. When it was all said and done, the 144 A-10s had accounted for more tactical targets destroyed than the entire rest of the 1900 airplanes. It was, (laughs) you know... If they had if they had brought in 288 instead of 144, they could have left all the 1900 home and would have had you know would have had at least 50 percent better results than they'd had. You know. Right. And as soon as the war was over, the Air Force was busy suppressing that data uh, and falsifying it. There was a huge flap between GAO and the Air Force over falsified data. Uh, Winslow Wheeler. Is the expert on because he was at the epicenter of that storm, working for for GAO, heading up the the review of the Air Force data, which was really really bad. It was, I mean, they did everything they could to make A10 good results disappear. They made A10 sorties disappear. They made A10 target results disappear. I mean, there was more fudging in that data, and of course, everything they could to make the F-117 look like it had done something when in fact it had achieved almost nothing, you know, because they were selling, they're busy selling stealth, you know. Uh, One of the the interesting pieces of that was this A-16 that I mentioned. That was a a little Air Force project to sabotage the A-10 that had probably started around 87 or 88. the idea was that you would take a or you would take F-16s and you would strap a small 30-millimeter gun pod with only, I don't know, three or 400 rounds in it, maybe not that much, under the belly and paint it orange drab camouflage and call it a close support airplane. And they actually equipped a whole squadron of them with the Air National Guard squadron up in Syracuse, a squadron that I'd known well when they had A-10s, and they were a very good squadron then. I'd I'd gone up there to talk with them about tactics and stuff. Uh, Anyhow, they converted them to this phony close support A-16 in the hopes that, you know, it would kind of catch and they could use it as an excuse to kill kill the A-10 force. Of course, along came Desert Storm and they only had one squadron. Of course, they sent it, as you saw, they tried to use it as an excuse for not sending any A-10s. They arrived and these poor guys, they were given an impossible task. Uh, You know, first of all, the gun pod, they took the gun pod out on one mission. And it did so badly as you would expect with these huge recoil forces. The guns immediately bent the mounts, lost bore sight, couldn't be aimed properly. And after that, they never flew again with the gun pod during the rest of the war. That's how bad that idea was. Of course, that should have been known in peacetime. You don't have to go to combat to figure that out, right? A typical indictment of what was going on. Uh, and that squadron then got tasked to, to suppress or wipe out some SAM sites along the Kuwaiti border. They'd had such an overstatement of the threat, of the SAM site threat, and the effectiveness of those SAM sites from the intel people who always do that, but who really laid it on thick. Uh, that, you know, that these SAM sites with supposedly newer SA-6s at the time, I don't think there were that many of them, but they had some that they were like death rays. If they pointed it at you, you were dead, you know, that kind of thing. So these poor guys in these A16s believing this stuff, they're releasing from like 15,000 feet at 500 knots, you know, so the bombs are actually developing shock waves as they drop off. So none of the ballistic tables work anymore, right? Uh, and they go on, they task the whole squadron to, do, to suppress these SAM sites the the battle damage assessment photographs come in to the headquarters the famous black hole back in Saudi Arabia and there were bombs all over the desert they didn't they didn't hit squat I mean there was essentially no damage to the SAM sites. Uh, A a very colorful A-10 pilot who was the A-10 rep at that headquarters brilliant wonderful legendary guy named Muck Brown told me <laughs> very, very colorful describer of combat he said he said the accuracy of those guys from Syracuse with the A16s a- was so bad he said they couldn't hit a dinner plate with their spoon <laughs> <laughs> Chuck Horner was incensed and and, and apparently uh, no doubt nudged by by McBrown or one of the other A-10 reps there, uh, assigned the same mission to the A-10s to suppress the same set of of SAM sites along the Kuwaiti border, which nobody had ever, ever thought of A-10s doing. I mean, SAM site suppression, that's like super high defense level, you know, and all that. And, but Somebody told him he should do it, and he'd get better results. And they tasked these A-10 guys, and of course, the A-10 guys, the last thing they were going to do was come in at 15,000 feet. They came in at 50 feet, right? Uh, achieved remarkable surprise. Uh, dropped some Mavericks on the, on the SAM sites and then tore them up with a 30 millimeter can. I mean, they shredded those SAM sites on the Kuwaiti border. And very famously, because it was in the presence of a lot of people at that headquarters, Chuck Horner said, he said, I said a lot of bad things about the A-10 before this war, he said, but they saved our ass. You know? And by the way, just to show you, when he went back to Washington after the war for a high staff job, the pressure of the other generals forced him to recant. He denied that he had ever said that, and he denied that the A-10 had done such great work. They just joined all the other generals, all the other bomber generals, and became part of the conspiracy against the A-10. And by the way, that, that was super effective because the next thing that happened to the A-10, the next dramatic thing that happened after this enormous success in, uh, in Desert Storm, I haven't even begun to you know, describe the real successes they had, uh, like against SCUDs. Uh, and ammunition dumps, huge truck and tank parks that they uncovered in the western desert. They had a whole beautiful operation going in the western desert, flying out of a totally unprepared site. I mean, basically, you know, having to live out of tents almost on this unprepared, you know, single solitary strip uh, in the western Iraqi desert and achieved amazing things from that base. Flew a huge number of sorties. They would rotate you know, half a squadron in at a time and the airplanes would fly like three, four sorties a day, you know, and they'd... pilots would only be allowed to stay for three, four days because it's so intense and so tiring. And every pilot who went begged to be allowed to stay another three, four days because the hunting was so good and they were getting so sharp, you know, the last thing in the world they wanted to do was go back, you know, but the Air Force insisted, maybe rightly so, because of fatigue that they needed to be replaced. Uh, so that was another great success. Anyhow, the reward for all that success was that the Air Force immediately started a campaign to cut A-10s and they did in fact almost cut the A-10, active A-10 force in half. They transferred some of them to the Guard. That was The first push was get them the hell out of the active Air Force, so the Guard got a lot of them, which by the way was great because the Guard is a much better home for close support than the actives you know I mean they have great active squadrons now. by dint of a lot of guts and character that they're hanging in there you know they're not in a friendly environment in uh, the Air National Guard the environment's very friendly towards this towards the A-10 you know because of the different way the Guard is structured state by state uh, So i was always very much in favor of you know transferring all of them to the guard if possible (laughs) but no the air force wanted to kill them Mm -hmm. and sure enough it was a huge cut in the inventory right after the war that was the reward for having taken care of more tactical targets than the rest of the 1900 airplanes and we're still there We're, we're there today right right exactly the same thing and of course the next big push i mean mind you that was 1993 that they took a terrific whack out of the force. They never stopped trying of course and there were a lot of smaller chippings away at the force that I won't go into. So the next big push to get rid of A-10s in a big way was by the Chief of Staff in 2012, General Mark Welch, who had been a one-tour A-10 pilot. You have to understand in the Air Force, it's not the kiss of death if you've been in one tour of the A-10. If you decide you want to stay in it or you've made your career path a, a, a thorny, stony path. But, you know, so obviously Mark Welch in his career was forgiven because he got out of A-10s as fast as he could. And he started a vendetta against the a 10 I have no idea where that came from. I don't know his background or or what, but he decided that they were a big drain on the budget, you know, which is laughable. This this is right in the heart of buying the F-35 for $400 billion procurement. And he's worrying about, you know, a billion or a billion or so a year of A-10s. Anyhow, he started a really upfront, open campaign to simply retire the entire force. Up to that time, most of it had been salami slicing of the force, shrinking it, shrinking it, shrinking it, year by year. He took it on frontally and he got badly bruised. Uh, we organized uh, as much opposition as we could. We, we that is Project on Government Oversight, had a a really effective and superb close-air seminar to kick off the defense of the A-10 that brought in journalists, think-tank people and and active-duty people and A-10 pilots from the Guard and so on. It was very successful. That introduced to Washington the fact that Mark Welch was trying to kill the best close support capability in the world. And, and the battle started and every year the Air Force would propose some way of taking the A-10 force down to zero as fast as possible and every year they'd be thrown back for bloody losses by the Congress because the campaign was was pretty effective and as people rapidly discovered there's a huge there's almost like a cult for the A-10 a huge popular following people just aviation buffs out there you can see it every time you get on YouTube and look at an A-10 video You know, seven hundred thousand views, one point one million views, five hundred thousand views, right? That's just, and so, kind of hanging on by its fingernails every year. uh, The A-10 survived. You know, the 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 national defense authorization act every year told the Air Force not to shut down any more A-10s, not to send them to the boneyard, and to support them and the Air Force every time tried to end run that and to this day I mean right at present is actually illegally letting A-10s be grounded instead of maintaining the 283 that the National Defense Authorization Act mandates as law. That's a fight that's happening right now, you know, Uh, no different than the fight in 1976.
0: You, you mentioned the, the videos and and the the popular support that the A ten has and I, I and it is kind of a curious phenomenon because I can't think of any other any other aircraft right now that has this natural kind of organic constituency. It, I mean it has, but it's earned that over the years. I mean, there's lots of us that have deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan that appreciate what the A ten and what a right. dedicated community. Of close air support uh, professionals can do and
1: and that's the backbone of the support is guys who come back who've seen it or who have actually had their lives saved by it and they're vocal about it and and they're very credible and people who are interested in you know in real defense for the country and effective real defense and and doing right by our troops they respond to that for obvious reasons you know it works it saves American lives uh, And it's a fascinating, fascinating story of, you know, of a fight against the bureaucracy that's now widely understood, that this airplane is under constant assault and that it should be, it should be kept in the force if we want to take care of our troops.
0: And that's it for this time. You can learn more about the A-10 and our efforts to keep it flying until a suitable replacement is available, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at @dan_grazier Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.